Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Everywhere we go, people want to know who we are and where we come from. So who are you and where did you come from? My name is Sinead Kavanagh and I come from Ringsant. Sinead, I met you, didn't I? Where did I meet you and why were you there? You met me in the Spellman Centre on Irish Town Road. It's a drugs project and the reason I was there was we were doing an open group for um, recovery month. Okay. Before I get into what that is and what Recovery Month is, because some people don't know what it is, do you want to, from the very beginning, take me back to the start of your life? Yeah. Um, I grew up in a block of flats just around the corner from the Spellman Centre. George Reynolds House, it was called. Um, I don't really remember much growing up in the flats. I was quite a timid child, Um, and there was all different age groups. Like There was my age group younger than... Older than my brother's age and my sister's age. So there was lots of people in the flats. Um, and my mum always said I was always asleep by half six. I was quite a, a timid child um, back then. And when I was five, I had... Um, my little sister was born, Margaret. She was born with Down syndrome. And no one ever sort of... No one sat us down and told us... Well, I, not that I remember in any way. No one sat us down and told us that this child is different or she has special needs or she has Down syndrome or anything like that. Um, so from the age of five, I sort of felt I was pushed to the side. That's the way I felt now. That's probably not the way it was, but that's the way I felt. Um, and I was always quite sick as a child. I always uh, had asthma, so my mum said I was always in and out of hospital and stuff like that. So, and I remember growing up with Mags, and I remember having to bring her out at times. Um, my mum make me mind her. You know the way yeah. siblings have to mind the younger mm. siblings. They don't like it doing it with a normal sibling. But I, I felt like when I had Mags out, I felt quite ashamed of her. Um, I felt people judged her. People back then, Mags, we were. I was. She was born in seventy eight, and back then there was a huge stigma. There was people called them terrible names and stuff like that. And and Mags was small and she was chubby and she had red hair and she was always like her face was always dirty and her nose was always dirty and she sort of had no filter. She she's an amazing spirit. 
Um, but when at that age, when I was 9, 10, 11, 12, I didn't see that. You know, I would have her in the park and I would be resenting her and I'd be giving out to her and I would be resenting me ma for making me mind her and stuff like that. Um, and I couldn't manage how I felt. I couldn't tell anybody how I felt. I don't know if my brother and sisters felt, my brother and sister felt like that, but I certainly felt like that. So I couldn't manage how I felt you know I couldn't manage how Mags looked I couldn't manage how myself looked um and that probably would have been the time where I would have turned to drugs um I would have turned to to drugs at a very young age in primary school taking solvents and gas and tipex and tinners and and stuff like that and I wasn't good in school I wasn't good academic um I was brilliant at, at sports. I had a teacher. Not the way you always have a favourite mm. teacher. Mm. I had a teacher, Mrs. Murphy, her name was. Um, and she was she used to help us with, teach us with the sports. Um, and I was great at basketball and I was great at Olympic handball. I actually played for Dublin with Olympic handball. Um, because when I was playing that sport, I was good at something. I felt I was good. I felt like nothing else in the world mattered, like, you know. Um, I wasn't at home. I didn't have to have mags out. There was, you know, my dad walked away a lot. He was a, a chauffeur, so he would have been away a lot. Um, and my ma would have been left, like, at home with, with the four of us in, in a two-bedroom. And, and back then, like, people just got through life, you know, struggled through life and, and stuff like that. So I found... In Ringsham Park with the girls and the lads, as you do, and starting with drinking and, you know, having a blow off a joint and, and not thinking that it was going to end up where it was going to end up, like, you know. Um, but knowing when I'd done it that I enjoyed how it made me feel, like, you know, um, I could be somebody else, you know. Um, <clears throat> and probably from the age of... 11 I was running away um, I used to fill my man's trolley full of the food out of the, out of the house and bring it all up the beach and what I was going to do with the food I didn't know um, but just real erratic behaviour like that you know um, I remember sleeping in a derelict building behind Rings End Church on my own at 12 years of age like anything could have happened to me but where part of me wanted someone to come and ask me what was wrong, I didn't even know what was wrong at that time. I didn't even know why I was doing this, you know. No one ever sat me down and said, why are you doing that? What are you running away for? What's wrong? Because that's not the way it was years ago, you know. You just you just got out on the street and, and that was it. There was no phones, nobody knew where you were. Mm-hmm. Like, you, you come in from school, dropped your bag and you were gone, like, you know... Um, and I must have tormented my ma from from a young, young age, like, you know. Um, yeah, so when I found drugs, maybe I found a bit of peace at that time in my life. Um, I loved what they'd done. I was able to mask who I was. I was able to be confident with fellas and I was able to have a lot. La- I was a real joker. I was real loud. I was always up for anything, like, you know, um... 
I grew up where my friends all had sallow skin and beautiful brown hair. <laughs> and here I was. To get, I used to have to fight me way saying, I haven't got, I'm not a ginger. It's auburn. Here's auburn. <laughs> and I grew up with freckles and all that sort of stuff. Like, you know, so when I found drink and drugs, I was able to be somebody else. I could be who I wanted to be. Like, you know, um, I escaped. I I was able to come out of my mind. And I lived a lot in in fantasy land, even in secondary school. Um, I'd look out the window. Instead of um, even teachers back then, I would be dyslexic in maths. I don't know the word for it, but I, and I still don't know maths. Mm. But even back then, I was just told, you're stupid, you're this, you're that, you're never going to amount to anything. So it was easier for me to mess and joke and laugh my way through school um, and then to be put out of school I, I was gone out of school at 15 um, and all that while I was doing that I was still smoking hash in the like there'd be probably 10 of us like on a joint back yeah. then like there'd be loads like it, it wasn't really bad at that time like you know um, and I was always looking for something else. I was always looking for the next high or looking for the next buzz or just to do something and never wanted to be at home and never wanted to be in my house or, you know, I would go out. I remember we used to hang around in Sheriff Street and we'd go over and I wouldn't come home like till two o'clock in the morning. I was only a kid, like, and I'd be getting battered. Mm. And knowing that I was going to get battered, I would continue to do. And I used to think, why do you... Why do you just act like that, you know? Um, I used to think there was something wrong with me. I did. I used to think there was something wrong with me. I was just wild and just misunderstood and just seeking and searching for something to take me away from the reality of what was going on in the home. I was just, from growing up with a sister with special needs, um... Now I wouldn't be ashamed for it. I'm still to this day, like if I see young children or someone staring at her in the street, I do be like, you know, sort of part of me be like, I want to say to them, what are you looking at? Why are you looking at her like that? But then I have to realise she looks different to them and, and they're not educated or stuff like that, you know. So growing up, I was always fighting a corner. If someone said something, I would pounce. And I couldn't understand why I'd done that. Um, and that's the way my life sort of went, you know. I remember leaving school and going to my mum saying, you have to get a job, you're not saying anything to you. So <laughs> I had to get a job and I got a job up in Quinsworth in um, the Marion Shopping Centre. Um, and I met this fella up there. He was four years older than me. Um, none of my family liked him. He was English. He drove a BMW. So I was attracted to the BMW. Um, he was like six foot four. Um, and he was sort of was my first real fella that I had, you know. Um, and very quickly, like, I would go back in. My mouth, my mouth saying, you're not to be with him. So, of course, I start going out and running away and, you know... Um, I'd stay out for a week, you know, she she would be out looking for me and I would come home. Um, not much would be said to me when I came home. They sort of, I don't think they knew what to do with me, like, you know. Um, you know, there's not... 
the awareness around all that stuff today wasn't around uh, back then when I was growing up, like, you know. Um, and I remember I announced I'm going to live in England. I'm going to live in England with this. First, I went to live in Malahide with him. Um, and I knew he wasn't a fella for me. I knew that um, things weren't going to go well. But yeah, I still stayed with him. Um, I was violent, he was violent, that sort of stuff, like, you know. Um, and then I went to live in England with him, knowing that I shouldn't have went to live in England with him, you know. Um, and I remember I used to be crying my eyes out, wanting to come home, because I missed my family so much. But part of me was like, I'm not going back home, because they'll all say, I told you so. And no one would have said, I told you so, like, you know. Um, and staying in that... And trying to make somebody love me. And trying for me to... And I couldn't love anybody because I hadn't got the ability to love myself. So I hadn't got the ability to love anybody else. Like I didn't know what it was like to to feel loved. Even though like my family would have given me love and all of that stuff inside. I just I just never felt loved or, or, or anything like that. Um so off I went to England with this fella and I stayed with him for a year and a half and I remember coming home Um, this woman that I worked with, she was coming home and she said to me, I'm going to bring you home with me. I was thinking, thank God someone's going to save me and get me out here and bring me home and all that stuff. Um, and I got home and anyway, um, and I told me family, told me ma what was that to happening and, and I was quite damaged when I came home from... From England. Um, Do you think you would have survived? Would you be alive if you didn't come home? Probably not. No, probably not, you know. Um, I don't think so. And I came home more damaged than what I had went. I, I was more damaged. Um, it's more damaged for the way that I treated myself. I was allowed to be treated, all that stuff. like, um, And I was 18 at this stage, you know, Um and coming home, and I just didn't want to live in reality. I didn't want to be in, not not be in this world. I just didn't want to live in reality. Um, so I took drugs, more drugs, you know. Um, and the rave scene would have been here, and, and, and I love dance, and I still love dancing, and I love music. Um, and when I dance and when I hear music, I get lost, and I go into a little escape in my mind, um, you know, and that's what I done. I um, I danced my way through. Um, I took drugs. Um, and then the harder drugs came in. Then, like you know, um, and I always said I would never do that, and I wouldn't be that stupid, and that wouldn't get me, and all of that stuff. And and you do really believe that it's not going to be you, like you know, um, because drug addiction is a progressive. It progresses, like, because if you look at, I started all those years ago in, in the park, like, or in second in primary school, and now I'm up to 18 and it's 19, and I'm, I'm coming to, to the harder drugs now. So it takes time to get there, like, you know. Um, and I remember getting into the hard drugs and thinking, 
no, I'll only do this once and I won't do it again. Or um, I'll do it on a Wednesday, but I won't do it again. Like, you know, all of that. So it would go, it would, it would go from the Friday and the Saturday after the raves and go to an early house and all that stuff. And life was just one big... At the time, I thought it was a party, but when I look back at it now, it wasn't. It was just destruction after destruction after destruction. Like, you know, um, there'd be gangs was out and everyone would be just mental and just over, like, you know. Um, and when the harder drugs came in, I remember I was working in an old folks' home with my older sister. She was out to get me a job. Um, and I remember going in and I said, I have to go home. I feel like I have to flu. Um I don't feel well, you know, and, and when I went home, I realised that I was dying sick. I realised for the first time, you're actually sick from drugs. You actually physically need to use drugs, like, you know. Um, and, and that's the way my life went for the next 15, 20 years. Like, you know, I was in a, in a relationship, it was just a drug fueled relationship, Um can I ask you now, that realisation in the moment, are you too far gone when you went home that day? Yeah, you're, gone, you're too, the, the drugs have you, they, they're controlling you now, so it's all fun and games at the beginning, and it's all great, and you're out having the crack and the buzz and the, the laugh with your friends, and all of a sudden you're sitting in a bedroom and your legs are hopping, and you're not, you need a drug. to for, for me to feel okay, I needed a drug, Um I thought, how is this had to happen? Like, you know, um, but still not being able to stop because once you get it into you, you feel all right and you think, oh, good, I'm, I'm good to go now again. Like, you know, um, and then you wake up the next morning and you're exactly the same, you know. Um, and before I knew it, I was on a methadone clinic. I was getting prescribed um, Valium, um Sleeping tablets, all, you know, all sort of tablets from the doctor that I didn't need, but yeah, I would tell him that I would need them, you know. Um, and before I knew, I was getting free drugs, which was I thought was great, you know. I was only meant to be... A, a methadone clinic opened in Irishtown. Um, I was the first woman to be on it. Um, and I was told I wouldn't be on it for this long. I wouldn't be on it for that long, Um. 18 years later, I was still on the, that same medication, still on the methadone. Um, but through all that, through taking the, the heroin and the methadone and all of that, like you, you, lose, you lose a party when you're doing stuff like that. You know, you lose your respect for yourself. You lose any sort of relationship with anybody. Um, everything is about getting up, finding ways and means to get more of your drugs. That's all. That That is your priority over, you know, I, I have no children, um, but over anybody in my family, my drugs came first, like, you know, um, even before Max, they, even if I was minding her, you know, if my man and dad was away, they came before her. I would go out and I would go scoring, um and I'd come home and she'd be looking out her top window, you know, waiting on me to come home. Um, and you just don't care, like, you know. And I remember 
like and I used to try and get clean you know my family would, we'd go away they'd bring me away and I and I would try my utmost best to get clean um, and I just couldn't I used to think it was the people or the fella or the this or the that or it was Dublin or and I wasn't it was never it was because I was a drug addict and I didn't even know that I was a drug addict um, you know and people sometimes people have a perception of what a drug addict was mm. or is um and that's not the case. Like, you know, I wouldn't have ever thought I was a drug addict because I lived at home. Um, I drove a car. I had nice clothes. All of that stuff, I, you know, where people think a drug, a drug addict is a certain type of person. And that's not the case. Like, most drug addicts come from the most loving families. Like, you know, um, it's just people that get caught up in, in addiction. And through all that, you know, I never... I could never hold down a job. I could never, you know, I would jump from person to person, pillar to post. Um, all I just wanted to be was out, out, of, me, out of my head, like, and, and the drugs done what they, they were meant to do. They, they got me out of my head, like, out of my reality. Um, and that went on, Rebecca, like, it just just went on and on and on and every day was the same like and I remember going to me my ma had a mobile down in Wexford and I remember being down in our Wex, in our mobile in Wexford where um and I was trying to get clean and I always remember her rubbing my legs my legs were killing me and she was rubbing my legs and she was saying if I could take your pain away and I was like if you just give me the money <laughs> just give me the money for the drugs like just give me the money you know um and I used to wear me ma down that much. She would just give me the money because that's all she knew what to do. Like, you know, um, I remember going out and paying a drug dealer off um, and getting drugs for me. This was sort of at the end of the, me using when I was coming to the end. And my older sister lived in Ballyferme. And we went around to her house and all I was worried about was getting the drugs into me. I didn't give shit that me what my ma was at the doing and I didn't care what my, and my older sister has never touched a drug in her life and I remember going in and getting what I needed and walking up my sister's stairs and I remember she I don't know whether she'll remember this but I remember her saying to me you're nothing but a scumbag and I thought did she go I remember sitting up in the toilet thinking you are nothing but a scumbag like look what you're doing to your family and and all that stuff, um, and still not being able to stop. And in 2008, 2004, sorry, 2004, my brother was killed um, because of the lifestyle he led. I'm not going to go into much mm-hmm. about that because of he has a child and grandchildren and all that stuff. Um, and even after that, I still couldn't stop, like, you know, um and my ma used to say to me, I'm at the bury in one child and I'm going to bury another child. And I'd be like, but I'm clean. Like, and you're trying to convince her that I was clean. Um, and even when that happened to him, like that changed my whole family. That changed my mother. Um, my ma was in and out mental institutions after that. Um, my dad couldn't talk about it. Um, it just pulled my family apart like you know um 
I was going around full of hatred and bitterness and anger and and it, everything was just fueled in me, like you know. Um, and he had a daughter, Michelle. She was fifteen at the time when he died. Um, and because of my my using of drugs, I didn't really know Michelle. Michelle would remember me as the girl that used to come down the stairs to say hello to her on a Wednesday when she came to the house. Um, and from his death through him dying like me and her have built this amazing amazing relationship like you know um when he died it would have been probably the first time that I felt that I want to get clean I want to do something about this I want to get this out of my family home I want to just I want to change my life now it didn't happen for another four years but mm-hmm. the, the you know, Elv, my older sister to say, Elv, if he hadn't have died, I'd have never got clean, you know. Um, yeah, you know. Yeah, you, you just never know what way things are going to work out. So, you know, I battled on for another four years, um, using and just existing and, same shit, different day, all that stuff, getting up, putting drugs into you, going to sleep, getting up, doing exactly the same thing. Um, and then after, I was 35 years of age, and the Spellman Centre had always been in Ringsend. Mm-hmm. Um, at that time, Teresa was the manager, Mary is the manager now, but at that time, Teresa was the manager. Um, I'd went to school with Teresa. I'd grown up with Teresa. She lived around the corner from me. Um, and I remember coming down the stairs and saying to me, Ma, I'm going to get clean. And or saying to me, I can't do this with you anymore tonight. You know, you either do something or you, you get out of the house. And that was the first time she, I think, probably meant that. Because um, I remember looking in the mirror, you know, at 35 years of age and thinking... Where have you gone? Where has that young person full of dreams and hopes, where has she gone? Like, you know, I was looking at a grown woman um, that I didn't even know anymore, like, you know. um, You know, and I was in a relationship for 15 years and and that relationship broke down because I had to break down because... we were, it was never going to, I was never going to get clean or, and or he was never going to go on his own journey, like, you know. So for myself, I had to to break away, like, you know. And, and I remember ringing the Spellman Centre and it took every single ounce of courage in me to do it. I didn't want to do it. I certainly didn't want to go over to a drugs project because in my mind I still wasn't, like, mm-hmm. an addict and I hadn't got a drug problem and all of that. And I didn't want to feel ashamed once again here you are feeling the shame like of walking into a drugs project because it's on irish town road people see you going in all of that stuff so people had seen me for years using drugs but your mind will talk you into but you're not that bad and you know all of this and so i went to the spellman center and anyway Teresa set up um i had to meet darren um And I remember going into our office and just crying, sobbing for the first time in my life, just sobbing because I knew 
someone was going to help me find a way out. I didn't know how they were going to do it, but I knew they were going to do it for me. Um, and I had to show up there every day. Now, I was still using drugs. I had to learn how not to use drugs. So I had to show up there every day like and show a bit of commitment. Um, my family stepped in and helped me 100%. They had me back. Like My dad used to bring me. I go to a fellowship, so my dad used to bring me to, to the meetings. Um, and anything anything that I needed, they, they weren't going to do for me. Like, you know, I knew that they had me back 100%. Um, and for the first time in my life, I was like, I was relieved. I was like, do you know, someone is actually listening to me now. Because um, the life that I had led, the destruction, the, the behaviours, the... The worry that I had caused me, man, like, you know, the nights that I would go out through the night and I'd be out half the night and I, and I know she wouldn't be sleeping and um, and coming home and not giving a shit about what they think or what they thought, like, you know. Um, and my dad walked away a lot, so my ma carried the can of a lot of stuff, like, you know, so when you think back, like, you know, they were real strong women, like, you know, and she she was fighting her own demons as well and stuff like that you know so I didn't help the situation you know so I went off I I didn't know how I was going to get clean I didn't know what was going to happen I didn't know like what was going to be put in place for me but I just knew that I had to do something and I I knew I had to be told what to do because me following my my own direction has never worked in my life so I needed direction from and, and I needed to listen not being now, oh, yeah, sure, I know that, sure, I can do that, and and I needed to sit and I needed to listen to what people were saying, like, you know, so I did, I went and I had come off methadone for when my brother died and, and I just went hell for leather, you know, um, and they had to get me back on the methadone programme and to go into treatment, um, and I, am I allowed to mention the treatment places? I went into the first, first I started in the Spellman Centre. So they got me used to turning up and showing up and talking. You know, Darren sat with me week in, week out, and he listened. The most important thing was he listened. He never once judged me. He never once said to me, you can't do that, are you? Unless it was going to be something mental. <laughs> he never once said to me, get out and don't come back or he never he just said and he listened and he was compassionate and he was so caring and he was so loving and great and I grew up with Darren like mm-hmm. you know so I knew where he had been like and, and I will always be grateful that he was he was my very first key worker he'd be delighted getting a shout <laughs> out there um and then he brought me into Solcher. And I went into group and solitude. And, and it's very hard at the beginning um, when you don't know. It's very hard in the beginning to sit in a group and talk about how you feel. And when it's not natural. Mm. It's not a natural thing to do, like, you know. Um, and from there, I went to the Lantern, which is run by Peter McFerris. Mm-hmm. Um, I done a detox there. I actually was only cleaning out my wardrobes last week. And... Uh, I still have my diary from the lantern and I was looking back and I was thinking, oh my God, like, you know, um, I didn't sleep properly for 14 days and I was thinking, I will never forget that. I will never forget that detox as long as I, it was me very forced detox and it will be 
the grace of mm. God just for today. It'll be my very last detox. Um, and from there, I went to the to the Rutland Centre. And from there, so this, when when I got clean, I knew this was my chance. I knew that no matter what was going to happen, that this was going to be my chance because it was either do or die. I hadn't got much left in me to give, you know. So when I was clean, I moved out of my home. I went to live in a recovery house. And because I had no children, I was single. I was clean. I was away from what the responsibilities. I was away from my family. For the first time in my life, I probably felt free. And I was 25 years of age. Um, and it was the, probably the most happiest time in my life because there was a group of us together we were on a day program and stuff like that because there's lots and lots and lots of help out there people just don't know about it Mm. they just don't know about it like you know some people don't know where to turn to like you know um and i'm doing this podcast in september and it's recovery month like Mm. you know um and from Saltje, I went back to Saltje when I was clean and I went to live in a, a transitional house and, and then I got my own little flat. For the first time I lived on my own. I didn't know how to do a shop. I remember my friend Joanne coming up to the flat and she was saying to me, what have you got in the washing machine? And I was like, oh, my clothes. I had that much clothes in the <laughs> washing machine. You know, I'd be going out and buying a big, huge shop of lettuce and cucumber because I was going to get fit and healthy and mm. this was never going to happen and I'd have to throw everything in. Mm. So I had to learn life skills. That's what I had to learn Like when I got clean. I had to learn life skills um, and I did, you know, and, and I go to a fellowship and that's a huge, huge support and that's a huge part of my recovery. I still go to, a, to that fellowship today, like, you know, um, I celebrated... 14 years clean in August and wow. that's a drink a drug a, anything I have you know anything um I'm total abstinent um so from the time that I got clean to the time that I I am now like lots and lots of stuff has happened in um my recovery you know um so we had to take a break there just to check on the mic because we felt that we had some little technical difficulties, but they're okay now. So you said there between your recovery, your start of your recovery to where you are now, lots of different things has happened. Yeah. So do you want to tell me a bit about that? So um, in my recovery, I have done lots of different stuff I have had lots of happy times I've had lots of sad times I've had lots of difficult times and it's it's just life as well isn't it but um I had to learn when I had difficult times or even good times because um sometimes when you're up on a high like it's you start chasing the high again um so I had to learn in recovery when something happened that I couldn't use a drug or a drink or whatever, you know. So, and slowly but surely, I, I started to change, Rebecca. You know, um, I remember my ma used to pay me rent for me. Now I used to have to give her the money. Mm. She wasn't letting me away with that anymore. Mm. <laughs> um, she took me me post on me, me rent card off me, 
because she was that afraid that because she knew I would. I was really irresponsible. I wanted to go out dancing on the weekend when I got clean. I didn't want to be sitting here there. So she used to um, go to the post office and pay me rent for me every week. Um, and then I remember after two years, I was saying to me, I think you're strong enough now. I think you can take back your um, card. And I was like, you're right, okay. Um, just little things like that. You know, when, when I got clean and I'd go down to me ma's, she'd be like, did you go to a meeting? Where you had to be in today? Who you had to be in with? You're all right. And all that stuff. Like, And I, in my head, I'd be like, she better stop asking me damn questions. But all she was was worried to make sure that I was okay, like, you know. Um, so I remember finishing my day programme and anyway, um, and I needed a structure in my life. When I got clean, it's very important to have a structure in your life because if you're sitting at home with your own thoughts, doing the things that you used to, sitting in the same bedroom that you used or sitting with the same people that you used... It's not going to be good for you and it's not going to really end well. Um, so I needed a structure in my life and the Spellman Centre asked me would I go back down there and go on a CE scheme and become a project, uh, not a project worker, a support worker. And I was like, do I want to work in addiction? I didn't know whether I wanted to work mm. in addiction. But anyway, I went back down and anyway, um, and I became a support worker and and I loved it. I loved helping people and I loved being around the, the peop- my people. Um, Tell me what a support wor- worker does. So I would sit down with, if just say Darren for instance, just say he was in key working somebody, I would go in and sit and watch what he was doing. I would go in and sit on groups and I would like support the facilitator, um, support the clients um if somebody needed a chat, I would sit and support them in that way. Um, I had to go to college, and like as I said at the beginning, I was not academic. Mm-hmm. How I passed, I don't know. Um, one of my friends, Peter, he helped me, um, and then in the Spellman as well, they helped me with the college stuff because I just wasn't good at it, like you know. But here, I. I'd, Got a diploma and I went and I graduated from Limerick University with a cap and a gown and all. Like, you know, my mum, my dad, Jimmy and Mags came with me to celebrate. Um, so there was a bit of academic in me. Um, so I went to college and anyway, and I um, trained in addiction, even though I've had the life experience of it. You mm. need to learn the other side of it as well and you need to have it on paper. So I became a project worker in the Spellman Centre um, and that would entail like, we, back then we worked with a lot of young young boys, well not young boys, young men like 20 and 21 and 22, a lot of them like, do you remember the, I think they're only getting like a, a certain amount of money on the, the labour and so they, they would come in and some of them didn't want to get clean, but some of them wanted to be there. And the way we seen was we were getting them in off the street. We were giving them a structure, whether it was for four hours a day, they were, we were giving them a structure. And we were planting seeds, like, you know, um, some of them young flies are doing really well. Um, and and through the, the Spellman Centre... Um, I worked there for about, I worked there for six years, I think. I think it was six years I worked there for. And I start getting reiki done. 
and uh, the, f- the man that used to do Reiki on me used to say to me, Sinead, you need to go and get into healing. Like, you need to heal people from the, in- you know, help people heal from the inside and stuff like that. Um, and I was like, oh, yeah, I will, I will, I will. Um, I had to heal myself before mm-hmm. <coughs> before I could channel energy to anybody else. Um, and in all of that, I had met a lovely fella, you know, um, he's from. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Bally Firm, his name is Jimmy. Um, and even when I got into that relationship, Rebecca, I still felt the way I had felt all them years ago, like, no one's ever going to love me and if, and if I love him he's going to leave me in the end and all of that stuff <clears throat> um, and I struggled in the relationship you know um, I struggled with feeling trapped I struggled with feeling he's going to leave in any way I struggled with he's never going to love me you know um, which I worked yeah with me worked I, I really struggled but if you were to look at me and see the way I went on, you would never think that by me. You would never. So I was still masking exactly how I was feeling. <coughs> Excuse me. Take your time. And yeah, here I am clean in recovery. I had to do a little bit of work on myself and afraid to tell someone that how I was feeling. Afraid to say to one of my friends, this is the way I feel. I can't, like... I can't open my heart to this man or, you know, so I would behave the same way I've always behaved. Just get out of my life. 
just get out of my life and shut her off and, and stuff like that, you know. Um, thank God he was consistent. <laughs> um, because, you know, he, he, was pro- he was the first man to that I've ever felt safe with. He's the first man that he would do anything for me. He would move this world for me. Like, you know, and when me and Jimmy got together, Jimmy has three children and um, lots of grandchildren. (laughs) (laughs) Six grandchildren now. Um, And when we met, like we said, we didn't want to have children and we didn't want to get married and... That was just never the case because from the age of fifteen, I've always said I didn't, I didn't want to have kids. I don't want to have kids, and I drilled that into my brain that much that I put it out to the universe that I don't want to have children. And really, when it came to it, I did really want to have children, but because I had made a pact with my ma when I was fifteen that that never happened to her that I would look after Margaret, you know. Um, and I think my ma always knew that if I have had a child, that I wouldn't have been able to look after that child because I couldn't look after myself, so I certainly wouldn't have been able to look after a child. Um, and I remember um, getting caught pregnant. I was 42 years of age, and I thought, oh, my God, what is that to happening here? Um, this was not on the agenda. This was not the way it was meant to be. <clears throat> and I remember meeting Jimmy and I was at the going and um, getting a pregnancy test. I was actually staying with my friends the night before, Regina, and I done. I went and I got the pregnancy test and I was looking at him. I was like, oh my God, I'm pregnant. Oh my God. Um, but probably deep in my heart, I was excited, but I was afraid to show people that I was excited and anyway you know I met Jimmy and he says right like this is, like you're pregnant so you know <laughs> we have to deal with this thing you know and I don't mean deal with this thing I we know. need to deal with this situation um and I was like right okay where part of me was still do I want it? Do I not want to? What do I? And, and I was so, <clears throat> I was so so fearful because I was forty two years of age. Mm-hmm. My ma had Margaret when she was forty seven, so all this was going through my head. There's going to be something wrong. With me. I'm not going to be able to have this baby. I'm going to feel trapped. All of this stuff was going through my head. Um, is this what I want? Is it not what I want? And then in the back of my mind, it was like, this is what you've always wanted. And then. A couple of weeks passed and it was like, yeah, this is what I've always, this is, this is what I want, like, you know. Um, and in that, as mad as this is going to sound, my heart opened up. So I do believe for myself, God puts you in a situation sometimes in order for you to, heal from something or to grow from something or for something to change within you or whatever you believe in. I be, I believe it was God walking through my brother or someone like walking through and he gave me this baby but unfortunately I didn't hold on to the baby. I was 
nine weeks pregnant and I remember we were going out for a scan out in Blackrock but I knew I knew on the way out I just knew and I was devastated oh it was heartbroken I was thinking why would God do that why would God give you something and then take it away like you know um and that was probably the first time in my recovery that I felt pain that I felt Like, you know, and I knew I couldn't turn to a drug. And I knew, and I didn't want to. That that didn't come into the equation of it ever. Like, you know, um, <clears throat> my family were devastated. Because um, my nieces, like, and my sister and, and even my nephew growing up, like, everyone, I would be, be real maternal. And I'm so close to to the girls and um, stuff like that, you know, um, and to their children. And I just have a real mother instinct about me. I think that comes from Mags. I think that's one thing she taught me was how to be a mother. Um, so that I had a, a, a miscarriage and anyway, and I had to go into hospital and I had to get a DNC and I was thinking, what the fuck, like, Why? But at that time, I knew then, I want to have a baby. Like, you're 42 years of age mm-hmm. and you want to have a baby. Like, talk about me. I do, don't do things by half. So me and Jimmy sat down and we talk, We discussed it and we talked about it. And we said, right, let's try. You know, um, I had to wait for a certain amount of time before I could try again. And... Within the, we we start trying again, and within two months I was pregnant again. Um, and it was really like we were so excited, and it was great, and life was great, and my heart was flourishing, and it was blossoming, and for the first time in like I felt loved. I I felt loved by someone else. I felt like I loved someone else. I had a, a life growing inside me, but unfortunately, um. I was just under twelve weeks pregnant. Two days, bef- two days um, before I was twelve weeks pregnant, and I had another miscarriage. I sort of, I sort of knew. I got the same pain in my back and stuff like that. So I sort of knew. Um, but this time, like, I, we were devastated. Like we were, we were, we were devastated at this time, and it was like. I remember the two of us sitting and we were sobbing and lying in the bed and like I didn't want to get up. So like, I understand how people with depression, you know, that when you just haven't got the energy or the will to get up out of bed, like I just thought, what's the point? Like, you know, um, I mean, me, Shannon was pregnant at the same time as, as me, me and her and my sister and my dad had been in America a couple of weeks before, like as well, um, and she was pregnant as well, and I and I'd be quite close to Shannon, and she couldn't come near me, you know, because, and I remember, <laughs> to break the ice, I text her, and um, I think you one Ronnie, I think it was LV Sanders that wrote mm. that. I said to her, "I'm going to do a Ronnie, I need just to break <laughs> yeah, the God. ice with her, <laughs> yeah, you yeah. know, because I knew she was devastated. Mm. She was devastated for me, and I didn't want her to feel that she couldn't come come near me and I didn't want to because I was at being my she had a little boy Kai um and I was minding him like 
at night time for I was at the take them over at night and Jimmy was saying to me you're going to be amazing with, as a mother and, and so I didn't want her to feel in any way shape or form that she couldn't be around me or, or, or anything like that you know um, I'm that little boy's godmother he's <clears throat> he's a little special angel that was sent um, yeah and my brother's granddaughter, she's another one that she was sent to us 16 years ago to bring uh, love and life back into her home as well. I do always call her my earth angel. Um, yeah, and everybody like was devastated for us and, you know, one thing that I got from her was that my heart opened up. That was the, the most precious thing that I that I had that I had learned from them pregnancies. Um, me and Jimmy became solid as a rock. Um, I came like I realized that I could have children, even though I didn't hold on to them. I could still conceive because um, I always thought I couldn't. <coughs> And probably the biggest thing that I had to do was accept that I was never going to be a mother, you know. So I remember Jimmy saying to me, if you want to try, we can try. And I thought, I am not going through that again. There's no way. I'd be thinking I'd have had like a seven-year-old running around mm. now. I'd have been pulling the hair out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> everything happens for a reason, you know. Um And after that, after that little sad story, um, me and Jimmy went to Rome and he proposed to me in the <laughs> Sistine Chapel. So some happiness came over um, and we ended up getting married. And, and Jimmy's dad passed away from, he fought, he fought a hard battle of cancer, like, you know, um, and Jimmy used to go to him every morning with his cup of tea and his newspaper. And I thought, like, that's the man I want to marry. You know, the man that turns up and shows up all the time. Um, the man who has taught me to love and to be loved and, and all of that, like, you know. Um, and then after we got married, my ma and Jimmy's ma, Jimmy's ma actually passed away on, on my brother's anniversary. Um, and my ma passed away five weeks later. And and before all that, I, <clears throat> I went down to my ma and dad and the two of them were sitting crying at the kitchen table. And my dad couldn't look after my ma anymore. She ju he just couldn't look after her. She, was, she had COPD and yeah, she was still pulling off a cigarette out of her mouth. Like Paul's dad. Yeah. Um, so... I had left my job in the Spellman Centre. We gave up me the flat that we were living in in Markovic and we went back to live in the family home. Um, and I looked after my ma for the year and a half that before she died, like, you know. Um, and it was a privilege, as hard as it was at times, it was like, oh, here, I'm not mm. cut out for this, but for all the years that I caused torment and pain and chaos and all of that that I caused in the family home. Now this was me able to make an amends to my ma for everything that she had done for me. I was able to give back this little bit to her, like, you know. Um, 
And she died down, she went to Wexford, down to her little mobile home, me dad. She went to Wexford, all right. You know, she was okay going to Wexford and she just never came home. But that was our place that she loved. Mm. And we were all with her when she died. And um, as sad as it was, it was a lovely thing to be able to be with my mother when she died, like, mm. you know. Um, so, yeah, I stepped into the role of being the mammy, you know. I'd look after my dad um, and Mags, you know. I always knew one day I would have to go back and look after Mags as well, like, you know. Um, and Mags is the type of woman, like, Mags is 44 now. And she's famous on me Instagram and <laughs> me Facebook because she's this... When I think back to the way I was with Mags when I was 9, 10, 11, 12, probably up into my 20s, to the way we are now, we have this bond, we have this unconditional love that it's just priceless, you know. Um, Mags is the type of person that has no filter. She says what she says. Mm. She's as funny. She is a true free spirit. She would be the... The one in their home and does anything going on, um, she is the one that walks into the room and just lights it up. Everywhere she goes, she's like that. Every single place she goes, she's like that. Um, she just brings and doesn't look for anything in return. Maybe a can of Coke or <laughs> that's her thing. A bar of chocolate, she's no worries in the world. Um, and, and that's the promise that I made to me, mad. I would look after her, you know, um, Look at you know me and Jimmy. Um, he loves her. He loves her like he's she's his own daughter. He probably goes out and does more stuff for her than <laughs> I do. Like, um, it's just the way he looks after the way he looks after me, dad, and stuff like that. It's just when when I look at the the life that I led, that I was seeking and. Always looking for something, always looking for the next hit or the next trail or the next fella or the next whatever. Um, and now I look at my life now, I'm so happy and content with sitting in my sitting room with my feet up, knowing that Mags is happy out upstairs. Jimmy's probably sitting beside me or he's, he's probably watching a Liverpool match or um, he's doing something out in his man shed, that's his little cave. Um <laughs> or he's fixing something, or he's doing something, or he's just being there beside me, like, um, contentment. Contentment is what I have in my life today, thank God. Um, I mean, Jimmy have travelled the world, and we've seen lots and lots of places, and we've went on lots of adventures, and we love going away together on our own. Um, we have great crack, we've... There's lots of love, there's lots of loyalty, there's lots of respect, there's sometimes arguments. Sometimes I let them win an argument. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there's lots of... Like, we're equal. Mm. You know, are, um, he has my back, I have his back. He does always say the teamwork makes the dream work, and that's what we have, like, you know. Um, How lucky are you? Yeah, I am extremely, extremely blessed. Um, I'm extremely blessed to to have been given this man, like, you know. Um, sometimes I don't give him enough credit, like, you know. Um, 
yeah, you know, we've we've lots of it. We've lots more memories to make together, you know. Um, and no matter what, like he, he has me back, and you know, in March this year, I was diagnosed with breast cancer, and <clears throat> my first thing was panic, fear. What happened? Tell me, how did you how did you find it? Mm-hmm. This is you know, this is crazy the way I found it. So I was lying in bed. Well, I woke up at half five on a Sunday morning on the 6th of March. Six years previous, on the 6th of March, I found out I was pregnant for the first time. So it's it's a real, like, mm-hmm. surreal thing. So I woke up and Jimmy was beside me awake. And it was at half five in the morning. And I woke up with my two fingers on the lump on my breast. And as I was waking up, I said, I have a lump on my breast. And that's how I found it. Otherwise, I'd have never found it. Where it was, I would have never found it. So I went. Um, Deborah, my sister, came over to the house that day, um, and I was screaming and roaring. She knew it was something not right with me. Um, <clears throat> so I went to the doctor the next day, and within a week, I was up in the breast clinic, and I was getting a mammogram. Mammograms are very sore. Mm-hmm. Um, a biopsy, but I sort of knew um, that it was it was breast cancer and it wasn't a lump. I knew by the the feel of it, and I just knew it was like a pebble off the ground, like mm. you know, like a, a pea. You know, them mm. peas was really hard. Um, and the most the most reason that I was fearful was. All I was thinking about was what's going to happen to Margaret and what's going to happen to Jimmy. Not like what's going to happen to me, so what will happen to them. If something happens to me, what's going to happen to them? I was like going a mile a minute, like, you know. Um, and they, when I went to get me results, no one was allowed into the hospital. So my sister, Deborah Day, she was sitting there. She sat outside the hospital and waited for me to come out. Um, and I went in and they said, we're going to tell you it's 75% breast cancer, but when you come back next week, we'll have the whole details and bring someone with you next week. So I knew. So me and Jimmy went back the following week and they said, um, yeah, you have breast cancer and the lump has to be sent to America. And and you're looking at them and you're thinking, oh my God, I have breast cancer. Like, you know, because um, cancer is a frightening word, like, you know, um, but you see, it reassured me that they had an amazing team and uh, that I'd be okay and that I had caught it early and um, I had to go in for an operation. And I was away with my cousins in Spain. Um, my ma's family, does a, a gang of us, and we're really close to a lot of us. Um, and we were away in Spain and I got the phone call um, to say that I was... Just uh, I think I was coming home from Spain on the Thursday and I was going I was getting brought into the hospital on the Tuesday. So everything happened really quick. There was no waiting around, like I was very, very blessed. Um so they brought me into hospital. Um and I knew that I was gonna have to get an operation. And my fear of getting an operation is that I'm gonna come out and I'm gonna be out on my head and all of that stuff. And so you have to explain to them that you're in recovery and, and all of that. So when they went in, um, they told me it was stage one breast cancer, but when they went in, it was actually stage two breast cancer. Um, 
I was very lucky it wasn't in my lymph nodes. Um, I didn't have to lose my breast because they, um, they, they hadn't ruled any of that out. Um, so they took the lump um, and then I had to go back and get another little operation because you have to make sure the margins mm-hmm. doesn't, you know, enough space. Um, and then they said I had to wait for the scar to heal and stuff like that. But they were so nice. They were so compassionate. They were so kind in the hospital. I have to say they really, really were. They, um, they never made you once feel... You know, because you had a lot of time you were taking off your mm, top, mm. like, you know, um, and you're standing, like, looking at a fella, like, you mm. know. Um, but they never once make you feel a certain way. or They just, they ju- they reassure you, you know. Um, and Sinead, can I ask you, after that, like, pain relief, obviously you can't take pain relief. If I needed to manage me pain, I would manage me pain. Mm. But they did offer me tramadol and I said no thanks and the fella across in the bed goes I'll have more tramadol (laughs) I didn't need it Mm. I didn't I didn't need it um I do healing Rebecca Mm. and the the best thing that I can do for myself is put my hands on myself Mm. and I would send energy into whatever place I need to send the energy Mm. in um so I didn't take the medication that the hospital game so mm. I got like painkillers off the out of the chemist you mm-hmm. know and then I took them for two days because I couldn't lift my arm because the lymph nodes mm. and I couldn't drive and I just had to sit and I just had to rest and I wouldn't be a person for resting mm-hmm. um but you know what getting this breast cancer has made me slow down has made me take a step back from doing lots of stuff for people um I was to do, I was to get treatment in August. So I took the whole month of August off, which was great. That included cleaning my house. (laughs) (laughs) That was the best part. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Everybody stepped in and helped me, you know. Mm. Um, I have an amazing friends. I have an amazing support network in and our recovery. Um, I still have my friends from from a young childhood. I still have all them. Um, and texting if you want and I know that no matter if I was to ring them at three o'clock in the morning mm-hmm. they will be at my door mm-hmm. they, and I know that for a fact um, and you know through all the, the treatment they were saying to me after two weeks you're going to feel this way and it's going to be this way and you're going to feel tired and your skin is going to change and you know you're going to get a rash and I love swimming meditation Reiki, crystals, essential oils. I love all that stuff. And I thought, they haven't got what I have. The medical end of it, yeah, you know, but the holistic end, they haven't. Like, I remember saying to them, can I swim in the sea? And they were like, no, you can't swim in the <laughs> sea. Your, your skin's going to get irritated. Um, and I went in on one Friday and I said to the girl, my skin is actually grand. And she was saying, your skin actually is grand. Tonight. Because every night when I was going to sleep, I put my hands mm-hmm. on my breast, mm-hmm. going to sleep, and I channeled energy into it, you know. Um, I was out swimming in the water. I was doing meditation, you know. Um, I was amongst nature. And it's so, for me, it's so important because um, I can't just take whatever medication mm. they give me. 
so I have to find a different way like you know and when I finished the treatment I uh they said to me now you're gonna you know you're gonna yeah all your breasts gonna break out and all a little bit broke out up here it was Mm. like um that prickly heat and the only reason that broke out up there was because that was the only place that I didn't put cream it was like that for Mm. a couple of days and now it's fine Mm. I went back to the hospital two weeks ago um they don't want to see me again for six months. They, Brilliant. They, they are so happy with the progress of the treatment. Um, they asked me in the hospital, what was I doing? And I told them, I said, I was doing Reiki. And we said, you're probably looking at me as if I was a head case. Mm-hmm. I said, I'm at the now swimming in the sea and, and I'm doing meditation. Um, because it's, I remember through COVID even, I remember my niece saying to me, Sinead, will you, because I'd go down the beach and I'd be meditating under the full moon and mm. all that stuff. And she was like, can we come with you? And I'm like, you're not allowed to tell anybody because it's COVID. Mm. And we're not meant to be together mm. and all this stuff. So a group of us got together. Group of, like, her friends as well. Girls in their 20s, 30s, with young children. And we all went down to the beach and we all started meditating, getting in the water, sea swimming. We'd meet for sunrise swims. We'd meet for sunset swims. Just a little group. So we start mm. calling ourselves the Soul Sisters. Um, and even them through the 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 cancer have been amazing. Mm. You know, um, to just know that there's someone there, like if you need somebody to talk to, you know, um, I have like. My neighbours are amazing. Like, Pat is one of my neighbours, and then the other woman, Pat, she lives down the end of the road. She's my ma's friend. They are amazing women. They're like my second ma's down mm. to. Um, they're amazing. Um, there's, there's lots, and I have lots and lots and lots of people that I can turn to. Um, but I'm not one of these people that say, I need help. Yeah. I'm just not one yeah. of them people. Mm. Um, I know when I'm not right, what do I do? Get out into the water, Sinead. Get your head under the water. Ground yourself. Get down into your little Reiki room. Ground yourself. Do a little bit of meditation, a bit of journaling. Drink a bit of water. Get out and walk up the beach. And 20 minutes later, I feel so much better. And you're doing the Reiki at home, are you? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I do the Reiki at home, you know. um, Because... I look after my dad, so I, I have my own little healing room, you know, so I'm able to go into that. And when I go into that room or when anybody else goes into that room, you can be anywhere in the world. You wouldn't certainly think you're in Tortain Bramman Grove. <laughs> you know, you can be anywhere in the world. Um, yeah, and it's just from the life that when I look back to the to the young girl that I was, to the woman that I am now. I have so much in my life now. I have so much love. I've so much contentment in my life. I've so much ability. I've so much strength. I've so much courage. Um and I've gotten all that from the things I've went through in my life and the people that have come through with me and the people that have been on my path. Um even the people that don't like me or I don't like that I learn from everybody, like you know, um what I do with my life now, I have a small circle of friends. Um 
I spend a lot of time with my cousins, um, with me normal friends as they like <laughs> to call themselves. Um, and then I spend a time with me recovery friends, um, and then my family. Like I love the kids coming. I love the. Um, I just love the laughter and the joy, and and I love seeing them going as well. Um, and I, you know, one thing that I've learned through all this, not to give yourself so much, not to get, keep some of yourself for yourself, like you know. Um, yeah, so that's that's really, really important. Yeah, because I think even as women. As mothers, as sisters, daughters, we do give so much. And sometimes you have to go, no, I'm going to keep a bit for myself. Yeah. And, you know, I love, I loved their conversation. And during the technical break, you did ask me, am I all right? And And I just loved the conversation. And I knew when I walked into that room the other night, I was late, but I, you are up there, you are on the stage as such, and you are talking about how you're going to help people and how to help people and where people can come. And I was like, something about her. <laughs> and then afterwards I came to you and I was like, will you sit down with me? Because uh, I just, like, the contentment, the respect, like the fact that you're equal with Jimmy. Yeah. They're things that I think a lot of women just want. They just want to be content. Yeah. And it's very hard to find you deserve it. You deserve it all. Thank you. You really do. Can I ask you about the Spellman Centre? Yeah. So, as I said that night, I didn't know where to turn when my brother had his breakdown. And I didn't know what the Spellman Centre was. And we're in recovery month. I didn't even know it was a recovery month, you know. So there is help out there for people. Lots of help. Mm. There is lots of help. So the Spellman Centre is in Irishtown. Mm. Um, Mary Doolan is the, the manager. Um, um, there's a great team down there. There's Lisa, Tony, Di, Jimmy, Darren, Derek. I'm not forgetting anybody. Tony, is there a Tony? Tony. Mm. Um, Ashley. Um, the, the girls that are on the reception, the girls even that look after the place, it's like the Spellman Centre is like a family. It's like uh, you come in, you go down the back, you have a cup of tea, you have a laugh, you have a joke, you know, you sit down, sometimes you can sit and talk to someone and sometimes you'd be roaring and crying or you'd be um, giving someone a bit of advice or, you know, if someone comes with a problem, try and bring them to the solution. Um, but it's like there's a drug-free programme does a stabilisation programme, does a family support programme, does an addict support programme. There's educational um, training that you can go and do. So if you just say someone came and they wanted to do a safe pass, mm. they would help them, you know, there's a certain amount of funding that they get each year. If mm. you want to go and do a safe pass, well, go and do a safe pass. They help people back to education, um, anything, housing, Doctors, passports, people getting their teeth done, um, doctors, and I say doctors, like families. I didn't realise there was a family, and that's what you yeah. said. And I, and I think, you, I didn't, was it yourself or Mary said, 
take if, if you feel someone's struggling and maybe the, if they don't know what to do, they should the family go over to the spellman and see the support yeah. and then you said take a leaflet take a leaflet and just leave, leave it, it around, around the house you said that <laughs> yeah. and I was like like yeah. I just think it's something that we don't even think of yeah because we don't because when you're presented with an addiction in your family the first thing is panic Mm-hmm. And then you're thinking, what if the neighbours are the, like, you, you know, does, and where will I go or what will I do? There's hundreds of places out there. There mm-hmm. is a huge, like there's a drug helpline that you can ring. Even the fellowship that I can that I go to, there's a, a helpline that you can ring for them. Like there's, there's so, so much support out there and it's, it's not advertised enough. And mm-hmm. I don't know why, because the drug problem in Ireland is getting worse. Mm-hmm. You know, mm. and the kids are getting younger. They're vaping at eight years of age. I seen a young fella and he's vaping. I felt like just going over and dragging it out of mm. his mouth and going, what are you doing? Mm. It's the worst addiction of them all, probably smoking, mm. you know? And it's And this is what I said, like, that, there's, that there is support. And I have people who contact me now and say, um, we're in this situation. Yeah. My brother, sister, son... Where I go, and I have said go over to the Spellman, and I didn't know the name. I was like, "Does the place over in Rings End? Go over yeah. there or ring, start ringing Kumara." But I do think it is up to the individual. Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. Because come here for years, my family. I get clean, and Mike, you're not stopping. What you just no matter what they say or what they do, if you don't want to stop, you ain't gonna stop. Mm. You have to be where I was in my life. My spirit had to break. I just had to feel that there was nothing left inside me. My soul was leaving me. And I just thought, I cannot get up and do this again. And it's only when something breaks, you know, well, that's what the way it was for me, you know. Because um, you'll only stop when you want to stop, when you're ready. Nobody can make you, you know. It can, people can bat you, they can lock you up, they can pray over, they can do whatever they want. If you don't want to stop, you will find a way. And I just want to say about the Down syndrome piece, yeah. um, and we had a little conversation before we started. Um, uh, one of, a girl I know, she just had a baby yesterday, and she's Down syndrome. And in the car, I said to, I was saying, talk to my daughters, and I said, and she's Down syndrome. And Aria, who's a, she went, what, ma'am? Wow. She said, how amazing is that she's Down syndrome? Because one of the boys in her class, his brother is, has Down syndrome. And there's a huge, like, the Down Syndrome Day, the odd socks, yeah. and the education piece around that. So it's happening. It's huge. Yeah, and it's, it's so good to see. And she yeah. was thrilled. She was like, oh, mom, that's so amazing. You're going to have Down And I was like, yeah, Aria. And I just wish, like, that there's more of that. Do you know what I mean? And I think there will be. Like, even for Down Syndrome Day, World Day this year, mm. we done a thing for mags. Well, not only mags, but mm. the, the people, the Down Syndrome people of rings and um because there's a couple there's a few people that have down syndrome and um google trees we for funded it mm. so it was an amazing day the amount of people that turned out in the community we got t-shirts we got t-shirts for the kids we had um balloons to let go like you know um we played that song i think you're amazing mm. like and that just disturbed the show people think like down syndrome there's nothing down about down syndrome a down syndrome no it's i don't a person with down syndrome would walk into a room and they just take over because they're pure 
they come from a place of love. I don't think I've ever met a Down syndrome that is really nasty or mm. the way us as normal people can be. I don't think I, like, Mags doesn't gossip about anyone. She doesn't give a shit about anyone else's life as long as her life is mm. all right. And she's getting her can of coke and mm. a few little bits. But she just comes in. She's happy out in her own little world. She loves listening to music. And music just does something for you. Um, she loves going, she goes to a day centre every day. Everybody knows her in Ring's End. <laughs> Everybody knows her. Mm. People on, like, I put up uh, videos of me and her on Facebook. Now, she's great for the banter. She's great at giving stick <clears> and all. Um, she's great at it. And people have often texted me and said, Sinead, I'm at the being in the depths of it. And looking at her video has just brought me out of it. I said, that's her little purpose on life, to make people smile. People don't realise that. Come here, it's tough and it's hard work. And, you know, they they come sometimes with medical problems. Thank God Mags is mm. only in later life that she has been getting chest infections and asthma and stuff. But we've been really, really blessed with her. Um, it's tough going, but here, having any sort of a child is tough going, isn't mm. it? You know, um, we're down with kids, people with Down syndrome. They bring so much pleasure and love to your life. They don't realise how blessed they are. They really don't realise how blessed they are. Because she's nothing but a blessing. And on that note, we leave it there, Sinead. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming across and sitting down and talking to me. And I know we've covered so much yeah. that we'll help so many. So thank you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.